0: We'd like to get started because I know everybody has had a long day and um, obviously we are so honored and, and have the unique pleasure of spending time with one of the most dedicated, hardworking, likable, frustrating individuals that I, <laughs> that I, that I have ever known, a perfect vice president. Um,
1: there's no such thing as a perfect <laughs> vice president.
0: You know, they said that uh, the vice president really has two duties. One is to provide over, preside over the United States Senate in case of a tie-breaking, uh, tie vote and cast a tie-breaking vote. The other is to inquire daily as to the health of the president. <laughs> so, uh, Before I go any further, I'd I'd like to just recognize a few people, and I apologize for those that I didn't. President Shakashvili of Georgia is here, President Ivanov of Macedonia, Peter McKay, our defense minister in Canada, ambassadors from Lithuania, Qatar, Libya, uh, a a very wonderful man, uh, Mr. Jabril, who is the former prime minister of, of Libya, Ambassador of Tunisia, the Ma- Ambassador of Macedonia, and Senators Ayotte, White House, Graham, uh, and to our beloved Joe Lieberman and John Kyle, um, who uh, we, we treasure their memory and miss them every day for their integrity and their service. And uh, a special guest, Dikimbi Mutombo, who most of you have already seen.
1: How could they not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who I think you're gonna find out tomorrow at lunch has done some amazing things in Africa. Uh, I've never seen a greater example of a person who turned his wealth and fame through incredible hard work into devotion and dedication to people who are less fortunate. I'd also like to point out that um, uh, Vice President Biden's sons two sons here hunter. Oh and your daughter also my my son-in-law son-in-law
1: my daughter's home Oh, she, she was son-in-law. smarter
0: and <laughs> The son-in-law is here and also uh, His son hunter and his son Bo Bo is the Attorney General of the state of Delaware He also served a year uh, of outstanding service in Iraq and uh Joe just told me that Hunter has just decided to join the United States Navy. Given my background, that <laughs> <laughs> given my background, uh, that might be the smartest thing the Biden family ever did. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Joe Biden and I have been friends for 38 years. We've shared some wonderful experiences together. We've experienced combat and we've experienced differences of views and some of those may be apparent in these conversations. But our relationship has been characterized by affection, but most of all by respect. I respect this man as much as anyone who I've ever known because I don't know anyone who was more dedicated to serving his country. And many of you know that he was Elected to the United States Senate so early that he couldn't take the oath because he was so young for a period of time and experienced a deep personal tragedy right at the beginning of his Senate career and he literally chaired every major Committee in the United States Senate and was a part of much of the history of the United States Senate whether it be confirmation hearings or whether it be his chairmanship of the Foreign Relations Committee And so rather than to go on about him, I would just like to read for just a a few paragraphs. And I know that many of you saw this morning's Washington Post, and I know that some of you did not. And the title of it uh, is The Sense and Sensibility of Joe Biden. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Though you won't see this on any plaque in the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. There's one baton our 43rd president passed, not to 44, but to Vice President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., who must be the most misunderestimated mis- underestimated practitioner in American politics today. Gaffs? Biden's got them. A natural byproduct of that thing that we call authenticity. But while we're laughing it up, just as we did at the present, now known as Aleutian Freud of Preston Hollow, we're liable to undervalue the power of coming across like, yes, someone you'd like to have a near beer with. When the vice president told MIT officer Sean Collier's grieving parents, quote, my heart goes out to you, unquote, at a memorial here on Wednesday, it meant even more. I think because he is one that he wears in plain sight. And because he has been changed by the long ago loss of his wife and baby daughter, as W seems to have been by the death of his younger sister, Robin. Republicans and revisionists may disagree with my feeling. However, Biden is not only hard for days, but a record of getting us out of jams rather than into them. As vice president, his people skills and knowledge of how Washington works, helped get unemployment benefits extended in 2010, helped avert the debt ceiling crisis of 2011, and the fiscal cliff crisis in 2012. And though some feminists have said outright that he should stand aside for history in Hillary Rodham Clinton in 16, I would just note that he's done a few rather concrete things for women. He's the guy who drafted the Violence Against Women Act and took the lead on the administration's push against sexual assaults on campus too. Again on Wednesday, the vice president said something maybe not quite Kamiel Fruit, but important, I think, when he called the suspected Boston Mar- Marathon bombers, quote, perverted, cowardly, knockoff jihadists. So I think that adequately describes in many ways the qualities that makes Joe Biden as endearing and unique person in the American political <coughs> landscape. And I guess, Joe, one of the first things I'd like to ask when in the reference was to, there have been three major crises that this writer pointed to. The uh, debt ceiling, the fiscal cliff, and uh, the unemployment benefits
1: extended. Well,
0: how did you do it?
1: Well, John, first of all, um, you know why John likes me? John likes me because he can't not because he knows how much I like him. (laughs) It's a simple problem. No, I'm serious. My mother used to have an expression. You got to love anybody. You got to love back anybody who loves you. He knows how much I care. No matter what the hell he says about me, I still like him. No, I'm serious. I am deadly earnest. This is a man. This is a man. This is a man who every morning he gets up, when he looks in the mirror, unlike most people, like many people I've worked with, knows whether he's lived up to what he thinks of himself or not, and he just. And uh, (laughs) you know, um, uh, we've been friends uh, a a long, long time. And uh, we have been through, we have been through battles. Uh, we've been on the same side of many battles, and uh, we've been on opposite sides. But I have, uh, I have never lost my affection or my admiration for John. And that's the answer to your question, John. Uh, how do we get those things done? You and I, and I would say the senators that I know well who are assembled here, including my buddy Lindsay, who <coughs> I told him, I'll, come to South Carolina and campaign for him or against him, whichever will help the most, I know which will be. I I know that, I know, against. And I'm going down there to do the J.J. next weekend, Lindsay. And I assure you, I will rip your skin off for you. And I expect a thank you note. Uh, But, but John, all kidding aside, I'm going to answer the question by telling you a very quick story, I didn't know you were gonna ask. We've not discussed anything. I mean, have never rehearsed anything here. John said we're gonna have a conversation. <laughs> I remember uh, it was uh, during uh, um, uh, the uh, early in the Bush administration, uh, W, and uh, John and I used to often sit with each other on the floor, in Lindsay. I mean, when the debate's going on, there's 15 people on the floor, John walk on the Democratic side and sit down, or I'd be sitting down, and coincidentally, the same day, if my memory serves me, John, we were sitting together. We both later uh, commiserated that in my caucus, the Democratic caucus, it was actually raised why was I over there? Why did I, it was not a good thing to do. And you told me you had a similar encounter in the Republican caucus. When John and I started, it wasn't like this. The reason why you get things done—now you Tip O'Neill says was famous for saying all politics is local. I think maybe I may be mistaken, John, but we may share this. And everybody in the White House kids me because I keep saying no. All politics is personal, particularly foreign policy with foreign leaders. It's personal. It's all based on trust. And the one thing I know about John and Lindsay and, 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 and others here, and I work with, I work with John Kyle for, for years and years in the same committee with different points of view, is uh, it's all about respect. And so the thing that is most missing in the institution that you and I both love, the Senate, is we've lost respect, and in truth, presidents have lost respect for the institution of the Congress. And so the thing that I have found is that whenever we want to get something done, uh, if you put, even when you, I mean, and I'll conclude with this, the minority leader and I are, are not friends like John and Lindsey and I are to talk about opposite, we're not enemies, we're, 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 we're not friends. Uh, and um, yet, I know when Mitch McConnell tells me something, he does it. He shakes my hand, it's done. He knows when I tell him something, it's done. And what these guys do, and my other colleagues in here from the Senate, is the reason they're good is they understand the other person's perspective as well. They understand that certain things you can't do, you can't expect it to move on A, B, C, or D. And so it's, I think it's about respect and trust. And each one of those instances you named, it came down to sitting down alone with one or two people, understanding their dilemma, that they could only go so far, and them understanding where I was. And and, uh, so it's, uh, and that's why I was happy to be here tonight, John, because this is like it used to be. This is like it used to be. How many times did we holler at each other? How, no, no, for real, I think people should know this. How many times, does, as friends, we would get in heated arguments? Like brothers get in, and sisters get in heated arguments with different philosophies. But at the end of the day, when you know the person you're dealing with was being truthful with you and cared deeply about what they were saying, there's always a way to work it out. Yet people think it's the opposite. They think more deeply you hold of you, the less likely you are you can reach a consensus on something. And uh, so, John, I think it's just simply, um, it gets down to <clears throat> respect and trust. Can I
0: talk to you about a couple of very emotional issues that have uh, afflicted or take, impacted America in the last, uh, uh, in, the, in the recent days? And the first one is, as a result of the massacre, not the first, in Newton, there was an effort to try to bring legislation forward in the Senate that would reduce the likelihood of, an effort to reduce the likelihood or possibility of another massacre. On one side we had people uh, who, with legitimate uh, motives, wanted to increase the restrictions on sale of guns, background checks, etc. And on the other side, we had some people who felt that that the Second Amendment risked being violated, and that some of the legislation that was proposed, went too far i think that the majority of the american people wanted us to do something now did they know exactly what that was i'm not sure but i think the united States, the people of this country were stunned by what happened just as here in arizona as you know we had a terrible situation when our congresswoman gabby giffords was shot i guess my question is, after these successes that you and I just described, why was there, in your view, a failure of us to come together so that basically, at least for now, nothing is being done in light of what you describe so well about your heart going out to these people?
1: Well, uh,
0: and is it symptomatic of a of much deeper problem?
1: You know, I think it's, uh, I think it's a little of all three of the things you've, you've one you implied and two you've mentioned. Um, first of all, um, as, as you, you know, I have the, uh, the scars on my back to uh, show for the last time we did something like this, it was the so-called, and this is not a self-serving comment, it's how it was referred to, the Biden crime bill was passed in 94 that contained uh, not only a hundred thousand police officers but it also had uh, limitations on magazines assault rifles and it was the not the actual vehicle but at the same time the so-called brady law background checks came into effect it was all in that 94 sort of package and um and uh, uh, in truth uh, to put this in perspective it was difficult to pass that then even with all the things that Senators wanted for their home states in terms of uh, rehabilitation money and police officers. It still only got seven Republican votes, and we Democrats control the House and the Senate. It didn't get all the Democratic votes either, and we had a president. And it was still very, very tough to get done. And it had a lot of reasons where people would be able to say, Well, I really didn't wanna do this in the gun part, but you know, if I didn't, I wouldn't get these 450, or in some cases, four to 5,000 police officers in my state that I was gonna get. So it was a different circumstance. This was naked, it was by itself, it was all about simply guns or gun-related issues, number one. Number two, something's happened, in my view, um, uh, in the last, uh, uh, with Newtown. Um, Newtown was sort of used that old cliche, the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a fundamental change, in my opinion, a fundamental change in public attitudes about guns. It wasn't, it wasn't marginal, it was real. It was, it was the kind of change, John, you pointed out, that the American public has, uh, has had relative to immigration. They don't agree on the, on the detail of it, but there's been a change. There's been a change. In my state of Delaware that, where there is, um, it's Southern, it's it's a Delmarva Peninsula. They talk funny like Lindsay does in the Southern part of my state. Um, but all kidding aside, very conservative state, very conservative issue. And a lot of agriculture's big, quote, hanging chickens, the, bro- the broil industry, it's a $4 billion industry on that peninsula. Uh, for the longest time, there was this animus toward any, any mostly Mexican workers who came in. Today, in southern Delaware, there is an embrace, but it's like, God, they work hard. God, this, they're a good family people. So there's been a change in my little state, for example. There's also been a change on guns. And there's a third thing that's happened. Not only the attitude about needing to do something, and you're right, I don't think the American people knew exactly what to do, but that's what they look to their leaders for. They look to us and hope we're mature enough to figure out what is. What, what is logical that we can do that will diminish the prospect of it happening again? And so we've had a Supreme Court decision. Uh, the first time the Supreme Court in history has ever ruled on the constitutional issue, whether or not owning a gun was a private right as opposed to a right attached to a militia, a well-regulated militia. And It was, this, it was a Supreme Court case relating to a law in Washington, D.C. I won't bore you with the detail, but it said for the first time in history, that it is a personal right, you have a right to own a weapon for self-protection in your home. They were very, it was very prescribed what it was about, that case. But they also said in that case, a very conservative Justice Scalia said, the government has a right to prescribe, limit the kinds of weapons that you can own, that's constitutional to do it. And he explicitly says, you have a right to determine who can own a weapon based on being able to exclude people who believed to be a clear and present danger to the community or themselves. So there was no longer this idea that somehow this was all about taking people's weapons. But what happened was that we have a law that's in existence now. And the law has been there since 1994 called the Brady Law. So if you're a convicted felon, if you're adjudicated, it's a terrible phrase, if you're adjudicated as a mental defective, it's not the right phrase, but it was 1994, then you can't own a weapon. There's other limitations. And you should have your background checked. But the NRA, not just the NRA, Gun Owners of America, other organizations who have, let's give them the benefit, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, that they were well intended, I don't, I'm not being honest with you, I don't think there are, but let's, for the sake of discussion, think they were. What what they argued was that extending those, right now only 60 percent of all the people who buy a gun in America get a background check. And they say, well, criminals won't, that won't stop criminals. It stops 88,000 a year. Ironically, one of the reasons criminals are criminals is they're stupid. 88,000 of them go try to buy a gun. No, for real. 88,000 a year, over 2 million so far. So there's another 40%. There must be somewhere between 20 and 40,000 more who are buying guns offline where they don't get a background check. So the proposal to come forward and say, we're going to just make sure everybody, we're not changing what the disqualifying characteristics are, not, not changing and anything. But the NRA started to put out an argument that said, look, this leads to gun registration. We Americans, for our, for our foreign friends, you're probably wondering what this whole debate's about, but we Americans don't want to have any, the government to know who owns a gun, where the gun is, et cetera. So what they began to say was, which was simply not true, that this will lead to registration of a, of a weapon but what happens is you go into Dick's Sporting Goods store to buy a gun in America. You only you say, "I want to buy that shotgun," or "I want to buy that AR-15," or "I want to buy whatever it is, that Glock 9." What happens is the clerk picks up a phone. There's an automatic dial number. He gets either the FBI or a thing called the uh, there, there, There's a There's a, a, a database of people in West Virginia. It's called the The This is a a a system where people are listed who should not be able to own guns. And so they say, I got, I got Joe Biden here. He lives at such and such, gives my address, and says I'm a US citizen, and I assert he's never, he asserts he's not disqualified from owning a gun. It doesn't say what kind of gun I want to buy. It doesn't give the registration number, a serial number of the gun, it doesn't do anything. And within three minutes, 93% of the time, it comes back and says, accept or reject. It doesn't say don't sell him the gun because he's been adjudicated mentally incompetent. Don't sell him the gun because he's a convicted felon. It just says, that's it. And that outfit in West Virginia has to tear up the request. They can't even keep for 24 hours the fact that somebody called and asked about a guy Biden, can he buy a gun? Well, what happened is, because there's such a, I think, there's such a disregard for government generally, there's so much distrust for government overall, an awful lot of people were convinced that maybe the is right. And so, what, but the fundamental mistake made, in my view, it's presumptuous of me to say this, especially with some of my colleagues here who are equally or better equipped to understand the public than I am, is that I think a lot of our colleagues miscalculated as to how deeply the public felt about this. And they were legitimately, from a political standpoint, worried that, even though a poll said in my state, 85% of the people support a background <clears throat> check, and 15% don't, when I called John, and you know, you're a stand-up guy, you, I mean, even if 85% of the people were for, against it, you would have done what you've done, knowing you. but. What happened was I called 17 of my friends in both parties. And the answer I got was as follows. Joe, don't ask me to walk the plank on this. The House of Representatives will never pass it anyway. Joe, you understand that the 15 percent are against this are going to be the 15 percent are going to be up at the next election, and the 85 percent are not going to pay any attention to me, et cetera. And so what's happened, the political climate's changed. What I think people are going to find out is, The 85 percent are showing up because now for the first time ever, first time ever. And again, I've done this as chairman of the Judiciary Committee for a long time. For the first time ever, you have of the people Mm -hmm. who are for gun safety, for increasing the background checks, two out of three of them say it will be a major determining factor in how I vote. That's the political dynamic that has changed. And so I think we're going to get this anyway. I think this will pass before the year is out within this Congress. And the reason I think it will is because the public has changed on this. We didn't get to any of the other stuff, which are, there are legitimate arguments about, that yeah. we are trying to change stuff. but. That's what I think happened, John. I think it was a significant miscalculation and worried about offending a very well-organized group that is very powerful. We have them on the left, we have them on the right, and the folks on the left and right are always afraid to take on those interest groups. Something that has never bothered you, or I might add me. And one of the
0: more remarkable things about that whole process that we just went through was that a large number of our fellow Republican colleagues voted against moving forward with even a debate on the legislation. I, I have never seen anything quite like that
1: before. I'd like to switch to another easy one. By the way, we've screwed up as Democrats as much as he's talking about Republicans. <laughs> I've been, I was there, I've served longer than all, but this is a, a terrible indictment. I've served longer than all but 15 people in the history of the United States of America. The United, only 15 people in all of our history have served longer in the Senate than I do. It's a place I know equally as well as John, maybe even slightly better in terms of historical perspective. And Democrats have been there as well. Um, I wanna talk about Boston. The, I think that
0: most Americans and members of Congress, um, because of the success of our law enforcement, surveillance, detection, all of the things that we were able to turn into legislation and restructure the government creation of the Department of Homeland Security, we surprised by Boston. That I think you could make a case that we'd even gotten pretty complacent because we had foiled numerous plots over the intervening 12 years. And yet, it seems that this uh, uh, tragedy that took place in Boston exposed some vulnerabilities in the way we do business. That a young man was able to leave the country and only the Department of Homeland Security knew that he left Uh, and they came back and nobody knew that he came back, or his name was misspelled, or something, all, all of this we're still sorting through. Uh, it's, it's remarkable that a guy who got to be able to stay in the United States of America, on a, basically asylum, went back to the country that he was seeking asylum from. Uh, so th- there's a lot of questions that need to be a- answered, and I'm certainly not, don't know the answers, and I'm sure you don't either. but. I guess I, I'm very interested in your views about really where is America, particularly in, in in keeping our citizens safe, particularly in what we are clearly seeing, and that is not Al Qaeda directing attacks from some place in the in the middle of the desert somewhere, but people homegrown getting recruited on the internet, becoming radicalized people that would literally take joy, as these two young men did, in killing their fellow citizens. And I, I know I know it's
1: a tough question, no, but no, I think it's, we've it's, got it's, to have this discussion no, in America. I, I agree. Look, it's a... Uh, um, le, le, let me posit that my colleagues here, um, uh, most of them have spent their careers dealing with uh, national security and domestic security issues, and they, and, and they know this issue incredibly well. Um, let me start with, a, which my colleagues will understand, I hope you all do, um, a, um, a disclaimer at the front end here. There are certain things that I can't say right now relative to the details of this, and there, it's clear there's more information we have to uh, acquire. The, this investigation is not, I- I- is not over. So I don't want anyone to read or the press here, whoever's in the back, read that I'm making a judgment about, I'm making any inc- conclusory statements about whether there was training, whether there were more than one, are there any more, what the connections were, whether or not we knew they left, didn't leave, come back, et cetera. Um, uh, and uh, um, just note that there are millions of people who come and go and on these lists, uh, there has also been times when other governments have given us information that has been disinformation, as my colleagues know. Um, and uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a complicated and difficult problem and we've got to get to the bottom of what happened in this particular case. But let me speak more generally to really what I think you're talking about, John. Um, you, you and I know we all know, all of us who work in this area, that the single most difficult person to catch is the lone wolf. The good news is because of, he doesn't get credit, because of the work that George Bush did, because of the work, and I don't think, I don't think President Obama gets as much credit, because of the work President Obama has done, both of them and all of us were prepared to follow bin Laden to the gates of hell and do whatever it took to get him. Um, and what has happened is, as you know, being heading the Armed Services Committee and those are on the Intelligence Committee, is that we have, as a, uh, as a, uh, as a nation, as a government, as our, with our brave soldiers and CIA and a lot of other intelligence apparatus, We've decimated Al-Qaeda Central. It is a mere shadow of what was before. Does that mean it's not a problem? No. But the likelihood of it being able to put together extremely com- complex plots to bring down world towers, et cetera, is, is diminished exponentially. It doesn't mean anything can't happen, but that is diminished exponentially. But our worry has been, and you, John, have been a leader in this concern, is this... This cancer metastasizing. It's metastasized, for example, in the Maghreb. It's that it's in, in 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 the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, in East Africa. It is it is metastasized, and so you have knockoff organizations that seek to affiliate with the name. Some very very sophisticated but mostly focused on a country in question and our interest if they can get to it. Um, and, uh, and, and and that's a problem and we're focusing on that as you know every day in, in your Armed Services Committee. But the most difficult person to deal with is the self-radicalized or the one that is marginally assisted, who is not directed specifically by anybody because all the intelligence apparatus and all of the all of the means by which we have to infiltrate or pick up the kind of signals we're able to pick up with our significant technological capability is, uh, is rendered almost useless. Um, the reason why I said and I got a lot of uh, comment on, not much criticism, these were uh, you know, a bunch of cowardly knockoff jihadis. No one trained by al-Qaeda, particularly in my view, and there's no judgment made on that yet, is gonna walk by knowing all those cameras were there. Soon as we saw those films that we were going through, I thought to myself, these guys aren't the pros. You can't, though, you can't, it's difficult to find the one or two people. How about the guy who just, the, the version of a jihadi who decides in his deranged way that he's gonna make America pay for whatever sins against his, his perversion of the great religion of Islam is decides to take out a, a shotgun, a machine gun, anything he can get and just walk into a mall and start shooting people. That's the most difficult guy to find, the most difficult guy to get. But here's what I found most interesting. What I found most interesting, John, is although people were, I'm not so sure they were lulled and asleep. For example, at that marathon, um, the police were, did more than I think most people thought they would have done. They had dog sniffing dogs there, you know, 15 minutes before at the finish line. I mean, so it's not like they, they, they weren't being attentive. What I found, and I spent, anyway, What I found is that people were pretty mature about the fact that this is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to have happened. But in the world we exist in today, it's going to be impossible to stop every one of these kinds of things. And what I found was the resilience of the people of Boston and the country in the way they've reacted to it. When similar things happen in other countries, the first thing that goes up is a call for close the borders. The second thing that goes up is a call for do away with the regular order of your constitutional guaranteed rights. The third thing that happens is they said, well, let's lock down the place, become more like a police state. We can probably get more of these knockoffs down the road, but in return, the only way these guys can win They can never defeat us. Nobody even thinks any, even the Al Qaeda at its peak, is going to ever defeat and occupy the United States of America, even force us to change our foreign policy. We are the strongest military in the world. We have the best police agencies in the world. So why do they do it? They do it to instill fear and intimidate, to get us to do the one thing that they dislike most about us in my They hate the fact that we are what we advertise ourselves to be, the most open, the most democratic, the freest, the nation where you can question orthodoxy, where you can breathe free. It fundamentally galls some of the people I could name and you and I both know in Afghanistan that one of the largest mosques in the world is in Los Angeles, that you have Muslim Americans, practicing Islam, engaged in fundamental disagreement with their government on things, and they are not only tolerated, but embraced. So the moment we begin to change who we are in terms of our value set, how we treat people from abroad, or how we treat people emigrating here, the moment we change the way we deal with the ability just to have the pleasure and the freedom of just walking down the street unencumbered without having to carry an ID card, without able to be automatically frisked by any police officer. The moment we change any of those things, that's when they win. Because they don't see how you can have a society that is not ordered and regimented and wedded to an orthodoxy that is theirs. That's the part that bothers the most about us. And I'll conclude, John, think about what happened, what's happened to us. Unlike even our European friends, we have not generated any xenophobic party. We have not generated an entire movement in America where we call for the kinds of things that have been called for in France, in Germany, in, in other countries. We are who we advertise ourselves to be. That's the strength. And so I think that we will continue to adjust and get better at dealing with these one-off capabilities, but without without letting the terrorists win. And I'm absolutely convinced. The only way they win is if we change. And John, I know I know some of you guys who know me well think I'm too much of an optimist all the years I've been hanging around, I should know better. But I really, honest to God, believe that my four granddaughters are gonna read about this as a small chapter in American history. It is not gonna be, it's not gonna write the history of this country in any way. We're America. We're America. I think it's
0: a... I think it's a logical follow-up then that that we talked just for a minute about what happened in the interrogation of individuals by the CIA and our contract people where we violated the articles of the Geneva Convention for the treatment of prisoners, where we violated the Treaty for Prevention of Torture, which was signed by President Reagan and despite what was in O Dark Thirty, Diane Feinstein, Carl Levin and I objected strenuously to the movie showing that employing physical torture to people got any uh, useful information whatsoever. And it seems to me, uh, doesn't it seem to you and to me that we should expose those abuses of human rights committed by the united states and hold people responsible and make sure that this kind of thing never happens again i i know that's a simplistic statement no it's not I, I am so the profound aff- statement. I, i'm offended Super. we are offended it offends the fundamentals of what kind of country we are and the practical side of it is don't think it didn't damage the United States image in the world in ways that we'll be paying for for years to come.
1: He's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. He thinks I'm crazy, but now you know why I love him. <laughs> think about this. No, no. Think about this. John doesn't like talk, at least at all the times when you and I spend so much time together, the one thing you never talk about is Vietnam. But let me tell you something. Think about if there's any man in American history who has served his country, and at a moment when the country was under direct peril, the first time we had ever, ever, ever thought, the first evidence of serious vulnerability from a non-state group of actors in 9-11, The loudest, clearest, most articulate, honorable voice about treating those detainees in a way that was humane was the man who was treated most inhumanely of any man who's ever served in the United States Congress. So guys, we would have done a lot worse, in my view, if it had not been for the voice of John McCain? That doesn't answer his question. I'm not being nice. I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'll answer the direct question. The direct question is, now this voluminous study has been done. It is sitting in a, still classified, in a intelligence committee and access made copies made available to the administration. And the internal debate that goes on in the Congress and in the White House is do we go back and do we expose it? Do we lay out who was responsible and how we got to where we are? There's disagreements in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and the administration. It is not resolved yet, John, but I'm where you are. I think the only way you excise the demons is you acknowledge, you acknowledge exactly what happened straightforwardly. That's why, for example, when you and I were working so fastidiously on on Bosnia and on Kosovo and why you and I and others, not just you and I, but you and I were two of the most outspoken voices in saying there has to be a war tribes crime until a nation acknowledges, acknowledges, no more, no, doesn't play with the notion that I didn't know. No one knew. It wasn't me. The single best thing that ever happened to Germany were the war crimes tribunals because it forced Germany to come to its milk about what in fact has happened. Happened. It couldn't, they couldn't in, engage, in, you know, that's why they become the great democracy they become. The same thing we're insisting on in Serbia. The same thing we're insisting on with what happened in the Balkans. Well, this is a piece of that. And from my point of view, it is about letting, the, so the nation, the nation says, okay, we either were quiet about it. It's only certain individuals who directed it, but there's still a lot of people in America who think, and you still have the debates, John, that no, in the name of our our civil, li- in the name of our protection, we have the right to do whatever is necessary to protect people, even though, as you pointed out, and the studies point out, it doesn't get the right information anyway, anyway. So. This is something that has not been resolved yet. I know Sheldon's been thinking about this a lot, and others. Um, I am of the school that it should be, um, should be exposed. To To be blunt with you, Well, maybe with the presser I shouldn't be blunt you. No one ever doubts I mean what I say. The problem is I usually say all that I mean. Uh, and so, anyway, we should have a, a further conversation, but I agree with you. I, all I... right. <laughs>
0: Joe, I'm honored that you would come here to Sedona, one of the most beautiful places in this beautiful state of ours. Uh, I can assure you there are at least 200 invitations for every single evening of Joe Biden's life and he has chosen to come here and honor us with his presence. I think what you're able to see here tonight is a man who has learned over many years of experiences, personal tragedies, setbacks, defeats, and victories. A man who understands this nation and the course that it should be on. And I think a lot of us who had the opportunity of spending a lot of time with him in the United States Senate will attest that even though we may disagree from time to time, and even though our debates and discussions may grow very um, uh, passionate. passionate. (laughs) I'll never forget one time I had a, there were two freshman senators on the floor of the Senate, one Republican, one Democrat, and they got into an exchange, and Ted Kennedy was on the floor. He came over and took the side of the Democrat. I saw what was going on, ran over there, and got to, took the side of the Republican. And Ted and I, I were literally nose-to-nose yelling at each other. The two freshmen had disappeared from the floor.
1: <laughs> That's called meatballs. two bulls
0: call before and we've walked off the floor and Ted said we did pretty good didn't we (laughs) that's that's the kind of relationship uh, that that uh, that has made us not only appreciate Joe but uh, have a lot of affection and so uh, you know I think there's people in this room would like to hear you talk all night Joe but I know that you've had a long day and I think what you've done for us tonight every one of us has helped us understand what this country is all about and our role in the world and I thank you for that. Well
1: you're kind. Let me make one closing comment about Look this is this is an honor to be here for real. It's an honor to be here. And um, you know you go through some tough battles you know running for president is uh, even in a primary it's not uh, a box of chocolates and running for president uh, of the United States being having the honor of being your your uh, your party's nominee is not uh, a, 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 an easy stroll, and all presidential campaigns are tough. It is not uh, it is not softball; it's hardball. Um, and the truth of the matter is, Barack knows I know. Had the economy not collapsed around your ears, John, in the middle of uh, literally just as you were. As things were moving, um, you at least would have I think you probably would have won, but you it would have been incredibly 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 closer. You inherited a really difficult time. you inherited a difficult circumstance. sometimes you know we run carrying an anchor um, and that 's not a credit, personal comment on George Bush. I really mean that sincerely this is it 's a difficult time, and the thing about it is that um, you know, this this used to be how it used to be. You know, I got there and there were all I ran on a civil rights platform, and I mean it was a big issue in 1972 as a kid. I got there with Holman Talmadge and and Strom thurman and Jesse Helms, and the list goes on. And you know, guys like one of the meanest men I've ever served with, McClellan from a Democrat from Arkansas and Fulbright and Eastland. And, um, you know, you know who did Strom Thurmond's eulogy when he died at 100 years of age? Joe Biden. I did his, I did his eulogy. My friend knows well. Strom Thurmond, on his deathbed, asked Nancy to call me, his wife. And in that Southern charm, she called me, and I said, how's the chairman? She said, he's on God's time now, Joe. But I'm standing here with doctor, and I can't remember the doctor's name, at the nurse's station. I just left strong. He asked if you'd do him a favor. Would you do his eulogy? The reason I'm about to tell you that it's not about me. It's about the time that it used to be. There's no man I disagreed more with on civil rights. But, John, with you and me, my, not with you. My view of you. There's never been anything I've disagreed with you on about fundamental principles. Not one thing. And folks, we're lucky he ran. We're lucky he stayed. And we're lucky to have him. Thank you. Thank you.